say before you illustrate I'd rather stay I'm not the man you think I am I'm not the man you think I am and sorrow Good afternoon. You're listening to the Living Writers Program, and today in the studio, um, Charles Baxter is is joining us. Um, thanks for coming, Charlie. It's my pleasure. Glad to be here. That's funny. Um, you're in town for the Carl Port uh, Writing in Public Conference, and and this this talk, this conversation is actually pre-taped for for listeners. And and uh, you were just in town. Maybe some of the listeners got a chance to to hear you at Shaman Drum for your your latest novel, The Soul Thief, um, which you'll be reading a little bit from perhaps later in the the program. And I see you also brought the Feast of Love. Um, and that you have with you because that's 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 important for this conference uh, two days, isn't it? That's right. This afternoon, uh, there's a panel that I've been invited to participate in, which is about the adaptation of literary works to the screen. And it's interesting because b- the um, the conference, in honor of Carl, is is really all about book culture, yes. but. But this panel uh, is more about screen culture and what happens when a book gets adapted for for the screen. And, and because uh, my story is not entirely a happy one, uh, they um, thought that I, I might be an interesting participant in, <laughs> in the whole thing. So I'm going to go up there and, and complain mostly about what happened to me uh, it's interesting because so many people uh, say to me, well, weren't you excited by the fact that your book was adapted for the movies? And, and I say, no, no. And, and weren't you happy? Well, didn't it fulfill your fantasy? <laughs> no, no, it didn't. It You're didn't like, do let that me either. tell you about my fantasies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, that's, that's why I brought it along. Your, your listeners can't see it, but the the copy I have of The Feast of Love is the movie tie-in cover with illustrations from the movie and a, uh, uh, what, what do I call it, the, the, the price oh. uh, on a label that uh, was put there by Costco. A friend of mine said, <laughs> you've, you've got to come down to Costco. Your book is on sale, and it, it, it was in a bin that looked a bit like an upscale dumpster. That had to be terribly heartening. <laughs> um, I, I thought, well, the good news is the the book is being widely distributed. The bad news is it's at Costco. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. You kind of want to think of it having this sort of maybe romantic life of its own where it's in these, these kind of beautiful covers, and then it makes its right. way to... You know, secondhand bookshops. That's what you kind of want to see its life as. Well, one of the things I'm going to say this afternoon is that when, if you have the the good fortune, I guess it's good fortune to sell a book to the movies. One of the things that you have to remember is that, in some sense, you lose ownership over your own story. You lose ownership over your you're writing the words, the events, the characters. Yeah. Somebody else owns them, and that's very odd. Many people, actually, because in the film, it's also somebody who's doing the casting. So they're, 
picking out people and then the director and you know, the screenwriter. The, the screenwriter, the director, the casting director, uh, and the producers who, in the case of, of The Feast of Love, were very powerful and had the right and indeed um, did, <coughs> excuse me, overrule the director uh, on many points of the adaptation. So were you more in league then with the director in this case and then the producers changed things to make you unhappy? Well, I, I was. I was in league with the director, but I had no power having sold the book without rights of script approval or any other rights so in for the, that matter. You didn't, did you, is that something that just is par for the course or could you have said, um, I'll sell it to you, but I am a consultant with the screenwriter or something. Oh, sure. You can, okay. you can, if you want to, you can um, make it a condition of the sale that you will only sell the book if you approve of the screenplay, et cetera, et cetera. And usually when writers make those demands, um, their books don't sell. Okay. Their books don't sell because most producers, most directors, most screenwriters don't, don't want to have the, the writer around unless... For one reason or another, he or she has a lot of clout. Mm. Um, and a lot of times, you know... Uh, What's your clout like, Charlie? Um, I, zero. <laughs> no, um, zero. Al although after the movie was filmed and it was about to be released, uh, they, they said they were going to change the title. The movie was going to have another title. It was going to be called... They, they actually couldn't make up their minds. They were going to call it the story of everybody or the story of us or... Um, well, that would have been a really good one. <laughs> yeah, there actually is, I think, a, a movie or a, a TV show with a name like that. And then they settled on the title Cause and Affection. And I thought that was the worst title I had ever heard. I called the director and I said, this is the worst title I've heard of <laughs> since Plan 9 from Outer Space. And he said, Plan 9 from Outer Space is a much better title <laughs> than, than this one. Um, and well, you were asking about clout and I, I told the director of publicity at Vintage Books that they were going to change the title. And he called them and said, well, if you change the title, the book tie-in publicity through Borders and the other chains will be. will be over. So to the degree I have any clout at all, it was through that, and that's why they changed it back to... So, to, so that's kind of like the power of books, or, mm -hmm. or at least the power yeah. behind the marketing machine of books. Right, or, right. Um, is that Martin over at Vintage? Because I think he was the no, one No, it's that Russell Perot who did that. Oh, okay. Hmm. Well, that's good. Well, because it could have also been the story of us. And that's not, I mean, oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's hard to imagine a worse title than that. I, 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 I suppose I could try, but I, that's it for me. Right. You can only do that so, so much. I used to think, oh, what's the worst title for a book of poems? And I'd, I'd kind of revel in trying to find the worst title for that. Um, by the way, I was trying to look for your, your book of poems, and I even emailed um, Grave Wolf about it, but I, I, and they were kind. They sent Burning Down the House and The Art of Subtext, so I, I could um, read those. Um, but I, I haven't heard back from them because I said, well, can you please reprint this book of poems because I'm not able to find it anywhere. Um, 
what you're kind of what what why did that it doesn't it, exist anymore what at at the talk you gave when you did the talk called losers um for the hopwood i think you mentioned it then and you said it it disappeared in a warehouse that's right and that's i hope right. this isn't a painful <laughs> nice i'm just as i'm doing this i'm thinking i hope this isn't like painful but why why isn't hasn't it been reissued or why why is it Nobody has wanted to. No, no press has wanted to reprint it. I think it's a reasonably good book of poetry. It was called Imaginary Paintings. And it was published by an outfit called Paris Review Editions, which uh, was something that George Plimpton at, at the Paris Review had funded. And so it was an imprint, essentially, of Paris Review, uh, the magazine. And it was all of the Paris Review editions were distributed by Simon & Schuster. It was a very low priority for Simon & Schuster to get these books out. And so the Paris Review edition books had a tendency to get lost in the warehouse, and that's what happened to my book after, oh, about the first two or three days following the release date. They just didn't know where the books were, so orders were coming in from bookstores, and they couldn't find my book. And when they finally did, they had enough orders to distribute all the copies they owned. So the book went from being lost to being out of print within a few days. Uh, it, it <laughs> that should be in the Guinness Book of World <laughs> Records or yeah. something. It was, it was very strange. But in any case, uh, no, it, it hasn't been reprinted since then. And what year was that, roughly, Charlie? Oh, I think that was about 1993. 93. Because I was going to say, because I wondered if it had any connection to George Plimpton's um, passing, but there was time, I guess just... It was before that. Isn't it interesting that the Paris Review is like loom large, looms large to me, but then you say, well, they don't, it gets lost in the, the Simon & Schuster. It's just amazing, isn't it? The dimensions of this, the the meat, the, the marketing machine. Right, right. You learn more about this the more, the more you're in this life, uh, the, the more you write and the more you watch. As your words become commodities in the culture, as, as you learn more about the way writing, which is, of course, an art, and we understand it as an art, but it is also uh, a commodity which goes out and is sold. Um, and young writers are often quite naive ab about that. Gary Snyder's talk last night had something to do with this, that when we're writing for ourselves, that's fine, and we may be creating art, but when we put it out there, when we give it to other readers, that is a different step altogether. And and uh, it's not a bad step. It's it's not, shouldn't be seen, or, I'm sorry, it, continue. No, it's not a bad step. It's, it's just inevitably part of what happens to writing as long as people want it and are willing to pay for um, are willing to pay for it in the form of the book if if all writing becomes digitalized then we're in a different world how do you see that world then what is lost or well I don't know well, because uh, that's something that it seems to the business of memory the art of remembering mm -hmm. in an age of forgetting um, that collection that you that you right. edited is right well, I, you know, for that book, I was interested in what happens when um, a writer tries to use his or her autobiography as the basis of a memoir 
or a series of essays, and then in effect, these not in effect, in reality, these memories, this life, this autobiography goes into a book and gets sold. So in, in a way that is very interesting to me, your life is for sale, your history is for sale. But that's part of what um, books do, that they, they, they come in a kind of package your life gets packaged, whether you want it to be or not, and most people do, uh, and mm -hmm. it's out there being sold. Someone comes along, you're sitting behind a desk, a person picks up your book, looks at it, seems uninterested in it, puts the book down, and walks away. <laughs> that would be kind of crushing to witness, probably. But it shouldn't be. It, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be, but it's one of the things that you come to see after a while that these things happen people are not going to not everybody's going to be interested in your life not everybody's going to be interested in the things that you write you can't please everybody no no <laughs> that's a theme today <laughs> that's right <laughs> um how is in the writing of memory how is how is the memory changed when you're actually writing it does it become different Oh, in the uh, art of remembering, because that that inclusion in your subtitle, the art of remembering, it kind of it, it points out that then it's become something quite different than what the memory is when it's just yours and not on the page. It becomes an art and it becomes an art because you choose to say some things, you leave other things out, you shape the materials you have in the same way that a poet or a, a fiction writer would it becomes a narrative, it becomes a construct. Uh, if it's going to be art, if it's going to be worth remembering, if, if you were just to write out uh, <laughs> as blather everything that you remember, no, I think it would be unreadable. Nobody would want to uh, go through a book like that. But it is interesting to think sometimes we don't even know what we're obscuring. Oh, well, that's true. In, in art and in life, we don't always know what it is that we're um, blind to. And, you know, some of the most interesting books, some of the most interesting memoirs are the ones in which someone has obviously failed to come to terms with something that is right there in, in the story. It's as if the elephant is in the living room and the writer goes on pretending that it's not there. Yeah, what's an example of that? Should I knew you were going to uh, ask me. <laughs> so I knew you were going to ask me that question, and I was going through a kind of mental rolodex, thinking of various writers, uh, some of whom I know. Okay, um, so perhaps you don't. Feel well, like no, and I, I, my friend Michael Ryan has written a book about his sexual addiction, and it's called Secret Life. Uh, and I think even Michael would say that this addiction has been so much a part of his life that he can walk around it, he can talk about it, but there's something fundamental about it that he doesn't understand. I think that's often true about addictions generally. Uh, and I, I think a reader of that book may actually see some things about sexual addiction that Michael himself doesn't see. Um, that that that's I often see. the case with with books. Um, 
the author may not know everything there is to know about the subject he or she is addressing. Right. And I, yeah. And even after the writing of it, um, I doesn't fully know what others can see. Well, let's take a short break and we'll be back with Charles Baxter on Living Writers. Welcome back. If you're just joining us today on Living Writers, Charles Baxter in the studio um, uh, um, with The Soul Thief, his latest latest novel. Um, and in the middle, uh, Charlie was just telling me before we came on the air how um, he's still doing the book tour for this in, in, in some, got some cities. What are the cities that are still on, the, on deck? Um, next week, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, where I will be reading... Um, with Richard Price, who's a wonderful writer. I'm going to uh, talk with him next mm-hmm. week, Charlie. He's coming through uh, Ann Arbor to promote his new book, Lush Life, which he'll be, be he'll be promoting in in Madison too. And after that, I go to Milwaukee, and I think that's going to be more or less the end of the book tour. With I, I have one or two other appearances in the Twin Cities. Which is more of like a home, a home base. Home base it? for me, yes. Um, is is this unusual to have the pairing where you're you're reading with another writer? Um, is it is it or is it fun or is it kind of like? Uh, it's it's know. okay. It's what okay. a question! It's is it okay. fun? <laughs> um, you know, he's. I think he's a great writer. I think he's one of the great American writers of our time. I've been reading that guy's books since the 70s, a, a book called Ladies' Man made a big impression on me, came out, I think, around 1978. 
And then when Clockers came out, uh, I, I read that and I thought, man, this, this guy knows so much about cities. He knows so much about uh, uh, New York, Brooklyn, Queens. He knows about drugs. He knows about law enforcement. Somebody said he's, he's the Balzac of our time. You know, he's recording yes. what it's like out there. And he's been writing for The Wire. For the, yes, uh, yeah, that's for, what yeah. I, I wanted to add. Yeah. Have but you been watching that? I haven't. I sort of lost track of things after the first season. But I think now what I'll do is rent the, yes. the, the DVDs and, and watch it. Watch it. as That'll be a great way to see it, actually. Yeah. Although you should just give yourself a few days. Because you I probably will. will just keep going, right, right. yeah. Because well, well, anyway, yeah. That's well enough. Enough about Richard Price. He'll be on the program yeah. later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, what part would you like to read for us, Charlie? About the, the I'm going to read a a section, right, almost squarely in the middle, which is concerned with the protagonist Nathaniel's uh, married life. He's been He's been married for a while, and uh, he has two kids, both boys. The older one, Jeremy, is a competitive swimmer in high school, and the younger one, Michael, is a, a kind of... An eccentric. An eccentric, <laughs> a rapscallion. I love him, yeah, that character. He's, he's a nice kid. Uh, and um, what Nathaniel is doing in this passage is... Uh, in a sense, rationalizing to himself why he isn't the sort of dangerous character that he once was, the the intellectual um, type that he um, tried to be in graduate school before he had a sort of nervous breakdown. He's, He's holding on to domestic life as a way of staying sane. And this is Nathaniel writing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Laura and I have had our own share of sh- shadows. We've been lucky, but not that lucky. For years, we were poor. I've already mentioned this. When the quilting business was flat, Laura worked as an administrative assistant. I took a second job teaching a night class for immigrants, English as a second language. Then there was the accident. When Jeremy was six years old and Laura was driving him home from daycare, she hit a pedestrian who was crossing a street downtown. She had been adjusting the radio to get a better station, and Jeremy had been yelling, and she was distracted. Baby Michael was home with me. This guy was where he shouldn't have been, no intersection and no crosswalk. But Laura didn't see him and the impact of the car threw him several feet into the air. He went unconscious for an hour or two, had a concussion and multiple fractures, and was in the hospital for over a month. He turned out to be one of those litigious Americans, a real bastard, a pain profiteer. Also an electrician and a drunk, but his alcoholism didn't get into the trial. He sued, of course. It's true that Laura hadn't had her eyes on the road, and it's true that our Chevy needed brake work. Our insurance was paid up, thank God, but the whole process went on for a couple of years. We were destroyed in some of the ordinary ways, and when it was over, 
you couldn't find either of us for a while. We had become vague and insulated. I could feel internally the parts of myself that had dried up and withered. Laura said I looked like a tree hit by lightning. I never said to her what she looked like. But we're lucky. We got over it. Our next-door neighbors had the whole menu. Their daughter ran away a couple of times, mismanaged a major cocaine addiction, and was turning tricks in Atlantic City by the age of 16. She even had her own pimp. The parents were nice, middle-class Americans, churchgoers. They didn't know what was happening to them or how it had started. Poor American parents, so easily confused. This same daughter got herself enrolled in a recovery program, emerged from it, began cutting herself for fun, then ran away again, this time to San Francisco, where she resumed her career in prostitution. She refused help. She accompanied her pimp boyfriend on a drugstore holdup, was caught and jailed. Her brother, inspired by her behavior, developed a liking for Vicodin. He began to steal prescription pads. He earned his own jail time, etc. Two kids in the slammer. The father started drinking, and why wouldn't he? Catastrophe is contagious. Everyone knows stories like this. My point is that middle-class life in this country seems to be operating on a contingency basis. It can change on you at any moment. They can pull the rug out from under you. You can be thrown into the street without appeal. Your furniture is carted away. Your clothes are tossed on the front lawn. Your children are ground up by a crazy commercial culture. Catastrophe lurks. Ruination prospers. As the guy in that movie said, ask people for help. Watch them fly. I went into the den and gazed down at Kuhlberg's phone number. The numbers in that particular combination had a terrible, frightening appearance to me. My hands were shaking, and of course I didn't want to go back there, into that world. I had lost my mind once, and I didn't want to lose it again. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for reading, Charlie. Um, Yeah, when I had read that section, it didn't strike me that that's, of course, why you were, were were talking about that that accidents can happen I, or at least now I see how it it was his breakdown and so when he was talking about like it's just a delicate balance with the mis- Midwestern that's right exactly a, yes exactly you know many people I think in American life um, up until possibly the last 10 or 15 years have felt secure they've thought you know, middle-class life in this country is relatively stable. Uh, Their kids can be expected to grow up and prosper. Uh, Things are going to go on the way they've always gone on. Uh, But I don't think people think that anymore. No. I remember actually when I went to undergrad, a, a professor saying, this this is and I don't know if she was being melodramatic, but being this is the first generation where you cannot expect to to make more than your parents. Like it's been part of like the last few decades was the American you your parents are here and then you will be somehow they will propel you further or you propel yourself further. And they she said this is the first generation where that will not be coming true. Right, that's exactly right. And you know here we are in Ann Arbor, Michigan. 
Uh, and Michigan is in a bad way financially. You know, the car companies are, are not doing well. Ann Arbor is a kind of oasis, as everyone knows. But, but even so, um, I think most of the undergraduates at this university would probably be happy if they had jobs um, or incomes as, as secure as their parents. And, you know, I really don't know what's happening to expectations anymore, whether they're going up or down. Um, but I suspect down. Well, <laughs> let's go. All right. All right. <clears throat> yes, let's right. change but the okay, topic. Right, let's okay. change the topic. Um, also, going back to it, <laughs> but um, I, I, it was great to hear you read, too, and it's interesting, um, I, and I, I heard, got to hear you at Shum and Drum as well, and um, the, the way you read, and, and it's interesting because um, it, the the pace of the book is is very quick. It, I noticed it. At least I thought it was different than the the short story collections and the um, uh, and 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 your novels that from before. Uh, and mm-hmm. I don't know if that's that's true or not. But when you read it, it was interesting because you really you slowed it down, and that's so. It's kind of lovely to have had that experience with it too. But otherwise, I was propelled through the book. Well, your listeners probably haven't read the book and when you're reading to someone who's listening to the story I think it's important to remember that you should always slow down more than you think you should. I had this lesson years ago when I was asked to record um, Raymond Carver's story where I'm calling from for the audio version of the best American short stories of the century. Carver was dead by that time so they needed somebody to read his story, and the story um, is the narrative of a guy who's at a drying out facility. And I thought, what do I have to do to get this story across? I have to sound like somebody who's a recovering drunk, and I have to convey it uh, with the weight that a story like that has. And I tried it in different tempos. And I thought, finally, uh, the, the, the best way to convey this is to slow down. It's like a man who is thinking about something and who has a weight on his back. And the only way to convey that weight to a listener who can't actually see you the, the way um, somebody in an audience could see an actor on stage is to slow it down because the slowness conveys you know what I mean yeah it, conveys each word is of, definitely weighted yeah, so it, it yeah. takes its own time it seems heavier heavier s- yes, somehow yeah. there are parts of this book if I had read them that I would not have read at that um, at at that tempo but generally speaking I like to slow down like, okay well let's take a break and we'll come back with Charlie Black Baxter and uh, the soul thief Heavy words are so lightly thrown But still I do 
Hi, if you're just joining us, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor and today on Living Writers, Charles Baxter. I almost said the soul thief, <laughs> Charles Baxter, <laughs> as if it's your, you know. Um, I'm not that guy. <laughs> no. I wrote about that guy, but I'm not that guy. So what's that guy? Like, what What do you mean by that? Uh, the soul thief refers to or seems to refer to a character in the book named Jerome Kuhlberg who makes it his business in the early part of the book to um, steal uh, first uh, Nathaniel's clothes and then he seems to be stealing his past in some strange way. Like about his sister, for example. Yeah. Is that he seems to be stealing Nathaniel's autobiography, and before it's over, he seems to have stolen everything, and that's when Nathaniel has a kind of breakdown. Uh, and uh, then Nathaniel meets up with Kuhlberg later in the mm-hmm. book, and he has become, Kuhlberg has become a public radio personality and has um, developed a sort of show in which he uh, gets other people to talk about their lives and seems to be an enabler for other people's narratives. He's a strange guy. I, I knew somebody like that years ago. Who was as strange? Uh, well, for a while he went around claiming to be Charles Baxter and claiming to have written the works of mine that had appeared in print and um, said that Charles Baxter was his pen name. <laughs> that Did you know him before um, mm-hmm. this happened? I did. I so did. it wasn't a random thing? No. It was that... No. I wonder. Um, in the in the book, it seems like in this in the fictions, the the soul thief. It seems as if there's the suggestion of Jerome doing it out of some need to be close to Nathaniel. Um, well, Nathaniel finally decides that there's a homoerotic element in it, and says near the end of the book, "I suppose he loved me." Mm. But uh, the 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 book, The Soul Thief, is is full of these sort of obsessional loves um, by people for other people who can't return it. Uh, uh, who was it? Um, trying to remember, uh, Foucault, I think, said, love is the giving of something we don't have to somebody who doesn't want it. <laughs> oh, Foucault! <laughs> yeah. 
I was I was once in Paris being interviewed by these people for the Feast of Love, and they said, "Well, Foucault says love is the giving of something we don't have to somebody who doesn't want it." What do you think of that, Monsieur Baxter? And I was absolutely flummoxed. We were in a radio studio like this, and there was dead air as I tried to think of what I thought of that. I still don't know what I think of it, but I think it is, in fact, to a degree what these characters, what Nathaniel wants to give Jamie and what Kuhlberg wants to give Nathaniel. It's something they don't have to somebody who doesn't want it. Something they don't have in a sort of positive sense. That is, they... In, in, in feeling love for them, they're, they're evoking something that they don't feel otherwise, you know? Oh, okay, in, yeah. In I the did way actually... that love becomes an addiction, you know, that it becomes a, a sort of high. Um, you know, it can become habit form. It can become habit forming. Yes, yeah. And we see that. We mm-hmm. see that around us and in people we know. Right. And, and, right. and Yes. Right. Yeah. Not us. <laughs> no. no, of course. Never us. <laughs> it's just always what we're observing. And, yeah. um, which which leads me to say, like, um, in a way, it's interesting to write a book about called The Soul Thief and, and in, in a way kind of look at that idea that we all have to kind of say, mm-hmm, because if you're writing, especially if you're a fiction writer, you're, you are always stealing or absorbing or observing and... and, and, and and of course, crafting and creating, imagining, but we're always doing, so it's an indictment of, it, maybe it's just part of the human condition. I, yeah, I don't, indictment was, was a bit heavy of a word, but this it's, idea like to try to, to, to merge with other things and as writers, are, well, what do you think? Well, I think it's only uh, exploitation if you put into a book uh, something that, if, if, if you put another person into a book who uh, looks exactly like the person in real life, right. and if that person has confided in you and, and you put those confidences in into writing. I, right. I, right. I, it is true, and, and you're exactly right, that writers do create... Um, souls in their characters uh, to the degree that that your soul as opposed to your identity is what you are to yourself the things that you know about yourself that you're not showing anyone else that only you and maybe God know about yourself if those things are stolen uh, if, if somebody finds out of, about those things and puts them into a book, that's soul thievery. Mm. Uh, I see. So a, the, okay. a, yeah, and, and if, if, if a novelist does it out of the imagination, it's not. Right. Yes, because I guess I was, when I was talking about it, I meant it in a, in a lighter way, like a soul right. thief, whereas, but how can it be light if it's actually the soul rather than right. the identity thief? Because yeah. pieces of identity can be broken into pieces, mm-hmm. whereas the soul probably can't exist if it's broken, or at least maybe that's what happens to Nathaniel in the, the middle part of the book. Can he exist? And, mm. and and I don't know if that's even answered if he can exist as himself afterwards. Like, I don't know what I think about that yet. Well, I can't answer that for no, you. No, I don't. I don't know. I guess I just felt... <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. no, please don't. <laughs> he goes on 
being a different person. I mean, if you, if you go through a crisis in your life and you've been a certain kind of person up until this thing happened, let's say you had your heart broken or you were fired from your job, it's not unusual uh, for people to go on from experiences like that as slightly different people from the, but I'm not saying this well, but, but from the person they were before. You think, I've got to change. And we have this phrase, turn over a new leaf, mm -hmm. which means I've become a different person. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, and in some ways it's necessitated changing because you perceive you have to protect yourself mm -hmm. from something that you've learned. Yeah. But also, you know, if you go through a trauma, uh, you know, having your heart broken sometimes is, is a minor thing, but sometimes it's very big. Or, you know, if you've, if you've been fired or somebody important to you in your life has died, uh, this trauma has been so huge that you feel, I can't go through something else. I can't go through something like that again. I can't be the person to whom that happened. So I'll change. It's weird, but, you know, people do this all the time. <laughs> That's not weird. Yeah, it's just uh, yeah, it's not yeah. something that we maybe talk about all the time, yeah. though. But yeah. it's good to right. have it. Uh, the ideas and the writing and the um, well, it's interesting also because you, uh, I heard you give a talk where I think it, I forget what the panel name was, but it was you know it's something about including the part that you've been called like a Midwestern moralist, mm -hmm. um, and in the section that that you you chose to read today. Um, that seems to sort of touch on that a, a, a little bit. Um, Maybe a little. I, I really don't feel that novels are out there in order to teach us how to behave. No. I just don't. And, and when I was called years ago in a review in the Detroit Free Press, a Midwestern moralist, I thought, huh, if you, <laughs> if you only knew how I've actually lived, you wouldn't say that. <laughs> Um, so, I, you know, I don't feel as if Tell I, us more, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how, how long do you have? No, no I, can't, I can't tell you everything. But I, I mean, the truth is I, I don't think these books, I don't think people would buy novels and read them if they felt that they were being lectured to, if they felt that these books were sermons. Uh, that's not what we do when we, that's not what we want when we go to a book. I, I mean, now and then, it's, it's nice to feel that you're learning something about how something works. Novels can do that, but I don't like that or, didactic purpose business. Or it's wonderful when you find something that's written that you've, you've felt but never articulated right. and then you right. see it and you think or the the parallel and you think mm -hmm. ah mm -hmm. yes and yeah the recognition the the exactly the pleasure of recognition you you look into the book and you see something that you had never been able to articulate before but it's perfectly articulated on the page and suddenly you feel as if aha now i recognize it and also you feel I'm not alone. Yes, that's and that is actually that's like the reason for writing when people always say, oh, well, your art and sometimes there's a selfish component of it. Um, but books save us too. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they save us from our solitude. They save us from uh, particularly when 
we're young, the feeling that there's so much of life that we haven't experienced, so many parts of the world that we haven't seen. So you open a book and here are all of these events, these experiences that the characters are going through and you, th and you think, oh, that's what it's like. So when it actually happens to you, in a way you're prepared for it. Just by read having read about it, you have some imagined, glimmer. Yes. You have imagined to some degree what it may be like to go through something like that. Um, I, I, it's funny that you said um, sometimes when we read the, the books, it's there's like these educational components, but you don't want to be lectured. There's this moment in the book where um, the youngest son, Nathaniel's son, Michael, who, we, who you mentioned earlier, Charlie, um, <laughs> when he's like giving his dad advice and he said, you know, don't eat, don't, uh, don't, don't take the ice cubes when they offer them to you because they're bacteria mm -hmm. infested. This kid is, you know, part of the contemporary age. He spends a lot of time on the web turning up weird facts. And one of the facts that he's turned up, which I heard somewhere, <laughs> uh, I don't vouch for this. I'm not sure that it's true, but um, he has heard that ice cubes that are served on airplane flights are very often contaminated with bacteria <laughs> and that you should never chew the ice cubes that are in the drinks that the flight attendants serve you. And I thought, that is so bizarre. <laughs> uh, he also believes that if you turn a channel to, uh, if you turn the TV to a channel that isn't broadcasting, you can communicate with the dead. <laughs> the static channel. <laughs> the static channel. He believes that Coca-Cola syrup, which is sold behind the counter in some drugstores, um, is a good remedy for upset stomach. I mean, he has he's he's a kid who has all of these weird theories and, and many I, different identities that he many, tries on. Many thank you for noticing that. You're the first person who has noticed that about Michael that he's tried on the identity of being an African American. He he goes through a stage. He's how old is he? He's 10, I think. 10 or 11. Uh, he comes in and announces he's gay, and his, his brother says, you're not gay. Um, he, he claims to be a Mormon. <laughs> uh, he's going to go to Mozambique. Uh, you know, he's, he's just a wild, you know, kid. Well, I know that character changed my life because I said, no ice, please, on the last flight, Good for Charlie. you. Good so for you. We'll, we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back with Living Writers, Charlie Baxter.
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in um, today, Charlie Baxter on Living Writers, and you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, woo! <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. It's, it's great to talk with you. Um, and, and actually, when when we were emailing about because we we were thinking you were going to come on the program earlier, uh, right. uh, um, uh, and you mentioned that there was a man that was removed from the plane that you were fly- when you were flying to the next book tour, and I was wondering um, because you you said it twice in the emails, and then you said, oh, I've already told you that. So I thought, ah, oh, it's an interesting moment. Like you seem, I don't, I didn't, I don't, didn't know you, and I thought. He's, he's kind of fascinated with something about that man being e- ejected from the plane. And then I was thinking, are those like the moments that you think come back somewhere in the fiction? Is, is that, or am I really stretching no. things here? <laughs> no, I, it interested me for a couple of reasons. I mean, just the way that, that you know, I s- suppose against our uh, better judgment, we get interested in traffic accidents. You know, mm-hmm. if you but, if you travel a lot, if you're on airplanes, much of the time, uh, the the way everybody's treated is so um, bad on on these planes that it's a wonder more people don't go nuts. And, <laughs> what <are> you? <laughs> and so this guy, you know, he was talking aloud, and people who were sitting near him were getting they were trying to get permission from the flight attendants to move away from him. And finally, the the, the pilot and the flight attendants and the gate agent. Uh, got this guy out of his seat, and they asked him, please, to take the next flight to Minneapolis, that he didn't seem to be ready to take this one. And I thought, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. I could be that guy. Right. Um, was, what was he, was he, was it what he was talking about, or was he just nervous to fly? I think he was just nervous. Yeah. Uh, I'm not nervous anymore, but I certainly don't look forward to getting on uh, another airplane. No. It's, no. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> You'd, yeah, I'd, I'd be concerned if, if you... <laughs> yeah, I mean, when was the last time you had a, a good time on an airplane? <laughs> Never. <laughs> I don't know, maybe the planes to Vegas are different. Because maybe so. I, the flight crew, when I was last on, they said their usual route was that, and they were hugging people. Like, well, the, yeah, any, well let's yeah. not get into yeah. that. Let's no. get back to the, the book. Um, <laughs> people, the people out there listening are like, yeah, <laughs> not your critique of the airline right. industry. Um so, um, so yeah, there's many interesting things about the book, like the structure. It's it's broken into four parts, and then there's like that 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 um, that middle section where it's fragmented um, to to mirror yeah, the, the, yeah. the breakdown. And um, well, I've always admired novels like Evan Connell's Mrs. Bridge and others that have uh, compacted chapters and have a lot of white space. And these novels practice the art of taking out rather than putting in. And um, so what I wanted was the effect of a kind of snapshot chapter, uh, a a chapter that might be only one or two paragraphs long and which is surrounded by this white space, a kind of silence, uh, almost a feeling of, of a lyrical emptiness. That sounds kind of negative, but it's, it's not how I mean it. Um, 
But I also wanted to give a sense of writing that has become as efficient as it possibly can be, writing that is doing a lot of work in a small amount of space. Yes. And, and so, I mean, what, one of the ways you get that is by asking yourself, how much can I take out? What do I absolutely have to have remaining in this in order to make it work? Um, this book is 200 pages long, and with luck, a reader can sit down and read it almost in one sitting. It is, yes. Um, and I thought, you know, it's interesting to give a reader that experience where you sit down and it all happens at once. Uh, maybe you get up, you go to the bathroom, you go to the kitchen, you get a cookie, you <laughs> sit down, you make yourself some coffee. But basically the experience, the effect is unitary. Uh, it happens more or less within you know, one or two sittings. It's not like one of those loose baggy monsters of a book that, that takes you a week or two or a month or two to get through. Yes. Uh, when you were, so, so going back to that, those, those sections there the, in the interior with the, because those are the sections that deal with Nathaniel's breakdown and the, the flashes. Are those, um, how, what did they originally look like? Was it like, so were you actually taking pieces away just to see what you, because it almost sounds like you're describing what a prose poem is, as in a way, or or like the short shorts or, or something. Um, my intentions weren't formal. That is, I mean, when I was thinking of why those passages had to be the way they came out, I was thinking of how best to convey the sense of a man who is beginning to feel that his mind is slipping away from him. Uh, and it seemed to me that the best way to do that would be uh, to give a sense of someone whose consciousness went on for a minute or two here, and then suddenly he found himself over there, uh, and consciousness went on for another minute or two. It was, it was through uh, the omission of the transitions that I thought that would that would work Convey best. Yes. Um, the 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 subject, the materials must always, I think, dictate the form. Uh, the the story comes first, and I don't always know. I usually don't know how to go about doing it, and I just find out through trial and error. That's, I think that's the way most working writers do it. You, you keep at it until you find a way of, of being true to the story that you want to tell. And in this case, uh, taking out was better than putting, putting in. Right, right. And that, makes, that actually makes perfect sense, because even if you look at the idea of a, a breakdown, like those, those two word pieces it's mm -hmm. like the breaks right, right. That, the part that's what you're right. addressing in that right. and then with the surrounded by the nothingness that exactly. you said, the lyrical emptiness exactly. yeah mm -hmm. but um okay well um uh well we've we're coming towards the end of our time sadly um so let's i don't i, I wanted to ask you about um uh, nathaniel's last article of faith like this hope that he had um and 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 why and how how important to you as the writer with this story with your 
living with these characters that it that this is unopened. And I know I'm speaking sort of abstractly because I don't want to give anything away. I don't know if you can talk about it at all. With at this. the end of the book, uh, Nathaniel, uh, Nathaniel, the woman he loved, uh, um, Jamie, has been, in a way that I won't go into detail, has been violated and she has moved and she has left a message behind for him. It is it is a letter, a note of some sort in a sealed envelope. And um, he comes to the end of the book without knowing exactly what's in that message. Uh, and I thought, um, I, it's not meant as a tease uh, to the reader, but I thought... No, that, it doesn't come across yeah, like that. Yeah, but that there is... In any relationship, there's almost always a, an envelope that you don't open. There's something that you don't know. Um, no matter how long you know someone, there are still angles. There are still ingredients in, in the other person's um, identity, the other person's character that you're, you're never going to find out. And um, to a certain degree, I wanted that to be uh, concretized, to, to, to be made solid in that letter, in that message. And that it's hope, and that it's, but it's so yes. interesting that it's this, it's it like is hope. part of his con construct that right. allows him to survive is right. not only what he's built, like this new self with a family of stability, but it relies, it hinges really on this person that he'll never have again in his life and he's, I've always been interested in the sorts of things people have to hold on to in order just to get out of bed in the morning, mm -hmm. the kinds of beliefs that you need to have in order to function in the world. Uh, it, it's simply not true that a person can function without believing anything. You have to believe certain things just in order to function, Yes. to get through the day. Do you have any sort of, like, well, that you'd be willing to talk about, like, like lucky objects or, or, or is it more something that, or, or you've examined um, things that, that you need to, that can't be taken from you? Um, what a question. What a question. I mean, it's a great question, but I'm conscious of the fact that we're running out of time and in That's a way, <laughs> and in a way, uh, this, wonder, this wonderful anyway. question you've you've asked me is what do you uh, what do you believe in order to go on from day to day and it's such a serious question and it's so it's so great that um, I don't know how to answer it without you know saying something that's actually false. Um, by by making it so sure. I mean, it, to some degree, I I believe in books. I believe in writing. I believe in generosity. I believe. I mean, I, I believe in love. There are a lot of things that I believe in um, that sustain me. Um, but I can't go into them in detail. No, thank <laughs> you. That's that's um, that's that's. You've done it. That's, that's wonderful. I don't. I actually don't know what I would ever do if anyone yeah. had ever asked me anything like that. I, I also, uh, before we go, I just wanted to say I, I loved the piece that you have in in the collection, the business of memory, um, and and that you wrote in memory of of Tom, mm -hmm. your brother, my brother. Um, yeah, and and this, yeah. He was a great guy. He was a great guy, um, and um, I miss him every day. Uh, well. 
it, this is one a wonderful piece. I know he would like it. Thank you so much for being on the program, uh, Charlie. Thank and, you. Um, it's been a pleasure. Uh, well, it's, it's, I've certainly loved it. And Jesse Johnston, uh, our engineer, thank you. Thanks for listening, Ann Arbor, um, to Living Writers and to those of you streaming. Um, uh, well, until next time. everyone and welcome to the daily sports report here on this wednesday march the 12th and i'm feeling a little under the weather but i'm here in studio with kevin gregus and gordon gordon those don't work but uh which one of you guys is going to bring us some michigan news today uh and by saying i got michigan news i really don't have michigan news um kind of down week michigan hockey had the week off um Really, only thing is the um, our our guys Rob Solomon and Stu Zoss will be down in Indianapolis tomorrow, taking out to uh, call the in- Iowa um, Michigan basketball game in Indianapolis. Um, that takes place, I believe, at twelve o'clock tomorrow. First first uh, first round of the Big Ten tournament. 